So this is the third in a sequence of talks that I'm giving. Uh, the first talk was two weeks ago, and the second talk was last week. And these talks are, by the way, all on the internet and available. Today's talk will be as well available just to uh, download or listen to at the website dharmaseed.org, D-H-A-R-M-A-S-E-E-D.org. In the, in the first talk, I, partly to honor the New England poet, Mary Oliver, who died in January, I used her poem, The Journey, which is a beautiful poem, and I used that to talk about the stages of development, the stages of, we might say, the spiritual journey. <coughs> and I had the poem as a reference point, and I also had the life of the historical Buddha as a reference point, his own journey to awakening. He wasn't called the Buddha when he was young. <coughs> he was called Siddhartha Gautama. Some of you may have read the book by Herman Hesse called Siddhartha, which my, <coughs> my parents gave me that when I was 16, on my 16th birthday. I didn't read it for a while. <laughs> um, and so, and then the third reference point was our own lives, our own sense of our own personal journeys. So that's what we looked at two weeks ago. Last week, I took the, I had identified seven stages of the journey, and then I said, what do we do at each stage of the journey? What practices do we do? And the stages that I mentioned in both of the talks were these. These are seven stages you could say, I, I called them seven stages of the spiritual journey. You could talk about them in other ways, saying seven, seven stages of the development to love and wisdom. You could talk like that, however you want to talk about it. And so the first stage is when we take life for granted. We just are in our ordinary minds, habitual minds with, with our habits. We tend to think this is, you know, we don't have any further horizons. We don't think uh, of any need for doing anything differently than we're doing. We may be having a reasonably happy life or not so happy life, but we're kind of with the, kind of just what we were given, and we don't have any sense of it could be better, or I should, you know, develop more, or whatever. Uh, and on the second stage, is when there can be some sense of wanting more, or some sense of, actually this is the second and third stage, some sense of the way things are aren't quite right, or something's wrong with this. You know, like I mentioned, for me it was just even when I was like five or six years old, I said to myself, gosh, why are some of my friends, uh, so you know, my same age, so cruel to other kids? You know, what's that about? Why do they act so mean sometimes? I'm never mean. <laughs> yeah. Or maybe I'm mean too sometimes. But why? Why are you know? Why do we do this? Is there something better? Right. And so we start asking, or we, we might see 
social injustice and just have, you know, why is it like this? Or why are there conflicts? You know, and is something better or is this just like the way it always has to be forever? You know, with conflict and injustice and pain and war and so forth. Why are things like that? And so there can be a sense of what it, what would it be like if everyone, you know, was more loving or more wise, you know, and so we have that sense of, gosh, I feel something is possible more than just the, you know, what we read on the front page of the news or hear uh, on the news. That's the second and third stage. I'm kind of, you know, both the sense of things not being quite right and uh, a call for something more. The fourth stage is when we consciously start changing the way things have always been for us. You know, this is for the Buddha, this was when he actually left his home and went on a spiritual quest. Right? He left his home and sought out teachers to learn from that could help him uh, discover the mysteries of life, we might say. Yeah. And for us, the departure from the ordinary might be you just go to Spirit Rock one day. <laughs> and you hear something, and maybe you learn to meditate, and you say, ah, I kind of like this, although not sure. <laughs> right? And so, in some way, you know, it could, it's going to look differently for each of us. We, we move away from the habitual, and we start it with a sense of something, you know, whatever we call it, better or deeper, is possible. And that's the fourth stage. We could, we could do this differently. I'm giving seven stages. The fifth stage is when we're in the mix, and we're actually in a, in a process of what we might call purification where we work with, we might say, we work with what stands in the way of our own love and wisdom. You know, we work with our anger, or we work with our frustration, or we work with our personal wounds that maybe were there from what life gave us. Right? And we, in some way, uh, work through our own uh, stuff. You know, we work through our own stuff, we get support from others, and we uh, we start finding, we might say, a deeper voice. You know, in the Quaker tradition, it's called we find the still small voice inside, right? That maybe was uh, buried, but we start finding. We find our own creativity. You know, we find our own uh, voice. That's the way it was in the Mary Oliver poem, "The Journey," that she says, as you, you know. You know, as you go further and further, you find a voice which you discover as your own. Right? You discover your own gifts, your own contributions to the world. And the sixth stage is that you come to some degree of awakening. Again, in the Buddhist tradition, the aim is awakening. And uh, we could also talk about it simply as the development of the ability to be present, to have love be more in the heart, to see clearly one's own mind. Those are all aspects of awakening. So the sixth stage is we develop awakening to some extent. There's more to be done, but we taste, maybe we taste what the mind is like when it's really quiet, when the mind is quiet, and we see uh, nature. 
more fully and it says, whoa, I like this, right? How do I keep developing this? Or we're with, you know, and this, this, these things can happen without meditation. We can, you know, I think we all have experiences where we're just uh, brought to a silent mind by the beauty. How many of us know that? The beauty just shuts our mind down so that we're just, whoa, you know. And that can happen in different contexts. That can happen sometimes with people we're very close to. And we start seeing, and it's a kind of a moment of awakening. And that happens. And then uh, the seventh stage is that we re-enter our ordinary world, typically having learned something. We could say sometimes bringing gifts back from the journey. You know? And so we could see this, these seven stages as something that maybe we do over a period of years. We could also see them as something that we maybe, in a sense, do every day. Right? Every day I meditate, I have, a, I have moments of awakening, and I try to bring it back to my everyday life. Right? So, uh, the seven stages are not necessarily about some long journey, they're also about what we do in a day, in two weeks, in a year, in an hour. Right? So today, I wanted to go back to ordinary mind. I want to go back to the first stage. And I wanted to talk about what's our starting point, our, what we can call our ordinary, unawake mind. And this really code for mind, body, and heart. Where do we start from? What are, what are, what's our... Uh, starting point. And what I thought to do today is to, uh, what I, uh, I developed the title for my talk, From the Ordinary Mind to the Buddha Mind. <laughs> or we could say, From the Ordinary Unawake Habitual Conditioned Mind to the Mind of Love and Wisdom. And that's another way to say it. So I use the code from the ordinary mind to the Buddha mind. And the way I'm going to explore that is I want to identify 10 aspects of what we can call the ordinary unawake mind. And again, mind is sort of code for just our experience, our consciousness. 10 aspects of the ordinary mind and how we transform each of them and how it transforms into something else. So it's a map. It's a map of uh, uh, our practice, really. And I would, you know, I'm going to give an overview of time today and focus a little bit more on a few of them. Someone said that, that sounds like a not a bad book title, From Ordinary Mind to Buddha Mind. So I should, I'll go out and look for a contract <laughs> after, after we finish. Okay. Uh, and not a bad title. I hope it, should I copyright it? Better. Okay. So... Okay, so it's really another way of talking about it is uh, is how do we move from our almost like our time of being sleepwalking, of being just an ordinary mind, taking things for granted, not really being that aware or awake. How do we bring awareness and awakeness into daily lives? Again, there are different metaphors for the spiritual journey coming from sleep to being awake is one of them. You know, there are other ones like uh, 
going on a path, uh, on a journey, uh, purifying one's being. A lot of different metaphors. Cutting through illusions. We use a lot of metaphors for what we're doing. So the one I'm going to work with is more that we're moving from the from the ordinary and habitual to the extraordinary and awake. Okay. And I'm going to talk about ordinary mind as being asleep in some ways. And I think all of us have some mix of being asleep and awake, right? We have moments of awakeness, but we also have a lot of ways that we're a little bit sleepwalking and habitual, right? And so, uh, so I'm going to talk about the uh, 10 ways that we tend to be not really seeing our we're not really awake. That's a, that's a good enough, uh, good enough way to talk about it. And I may, I may, in future weeks, uh, focus on some of the ten. You know, I just came up with this yesterday, <laughs> and I'm actually teaching our long retreat now. Our, uh, we have, we have uh, two months, February and March, and I'm one of the teachers for the month of March. We have 92 people who are there for either one month or two months. And I'm working with them. Yeah. And I, I'm taking a break. <laughs> okay. But they're no different from you. Okay. So here's the first one. Uh, and I'm going to say that all of these, I think, are culturally situated. In other words, the ordinary mind's going to look different if we have the conditioning of Western culture than it did 500 years ago in some other culture. There's, you know, we have, and so uh, the first of these is that we have, um, we really have a lot of thinking. We have ordinary thinking. And ordinary thinking is repetitive and habitual, and especially in this culture, we are often thinking all the time. Right? There was a Thai Buddhist teacher named Achan Buddhadasa who was once asked for his evaluation of Western civilization. And he said, lost in thought. Oh. It reminds me very much of what Gandhi also was once asked, what do you think of Western civilization? And he said, it would be a good idea. <laughs> It's a good idea. You should do it. <laughs> okay. And so we have ways, particularly the last few hundred years, where thinking is just so um, much the typical experience. We're often, th and, you know, all of the electronic devices sort of amplify that, don't they? We're just always in a cognitive realm. How many can relate to that? Yeah, it's just very common where we're. Uh, a lot of thinking, you know, some of you may have read once uh, the philosopher Descartes, who, what, I think uh, 17th century said, I think, therefore I am. If we were doing a mindfulness version of that, we would say, I think, I have physical experiences of the body, I have emotions, 
and nothing follows from it. Okay, I'll come back to that. I wasn't probably crystal clear what I meant. But, um, in any case, uh, we have in our culture a high level of distraction, right? High level of thinking. How many of us, when we first meditated, uh, sat down to meditate, could have been today or a little while ago, noticed just a lot of thinking all the time? Yeah. So it's, it's, it's very common. And we also think in a very habitual way. We think the same thing. I've often mentioned a quotation from a neuroscientist that the brain does not like consciousness. The brain likes habits. And so when we look at our thinking, it's one of the things we find when we do meditate, we'll find that the thinking is very, very habitual. We kind of have the same patterns. We have the same ways of navigating life that we've kind of worked out. And this is one of the things we discover when we meditate. Uh, neuroscientists, about uh, 2001, developed a name for this. They actually had a discovery of this habitual thinking part of the brain. They called it the default uh, mode network. How many have heard of that? Yeah. The default mode network, uh, abbreviated DMN. right? And the default ma uh, mode network is responsible for kind of developing all our habits of mind. And when we're thinking a lot, it's the default mode network doing its thing. Right? And it's um, technically, it's the part of the brain that uh, it's a network that links parts of the cerebral cortex to deeper and older structures of the brain connected with memory and emotion. So it links memory, emotion, and the uh, part of the cognitive apparatus. And it tends to be uh, top-down. The default net mo network kind of controls things. And it, it imposes order on what could be the unruly emotions. You ever notice unruly emotions starting? <laughs> the default mo network will take care of that. And it's very responsible for all of our mental constructs and projections. And so the basic idea is we live in that network. That's where the bulk of our thinking is. And sometimes it's called the me network. It's very oriented to how I navigate life. And they've also done research. There's a famous article uh, in the literature, in the neuroscientific literature, which shows a relationship between a lot of excessive thinking and unhappiness. There's a famous uh, uh, research article which was titled, A Wandering Mind is an Unhappy Mind. I think it's a little bit of a gross generalization. I think there's obviously some value in some kinds of wandering creativity and so forth, but this was looked like really excessive wandering is usually like ruminating on the past, anxiety about the future. That's the default mode network, and those habits are not so good, right? So that's our usual sort of unawake mind, dominated by the default mode network. So as we practice, you know, what is the, what's the Buddha mind? Where does this go? The Buddha mind has less thinking. 
is really uh, not ruled and dominated by our habitual thinking. Rather, thinking becomes a tool that we use skillfully for the purposes of wisdom and compassion, helping others. We use the thinking rather than be dominated by our habits of thinking. That's where we're going. That's partly also in response to your question. Like, where do we go with this? And so there's a different uh, relationship that develops with our thinking. We develop concentration. We're able to actually be present without being dominated by our thinking. That's possible. We can, we can again, be with the sunset without just thinking all the time. Again, we develop in this, and we have practices by which we cultivate this. So we, de- we have practices to develop more concentration, practices to develop mindfulness, and we could say that we also have ways of bringing this out into the flow of everyday life, communication practices, and so forth. So the first, this first aspect of ordinary mind is being dominated by thinking. And thinking being very habitual, largely unconscious. Some of it helpful, some of it not helpful. I want to be really clear that the habitual thinking can be useful in many ways. It's not simply a problem. A lot of our habits are very useful. You know, I've sometimes, I mentioned like last week when I was talking a little bit about ordinary mind, I was noticing that I start to shave always on the left side of my face. It's like a habit. We all have habits. How do you brush your teeth? You know, how do you eat your meals? How do you make your bed? All this stuff, like I said, the brain kind of works out habits. We get a certain level of comfort. We just do it. We don't think about it. Basically, the brain doesn't like to have to approach things freshly. Too much work. Habits solve that problem, right? And some of our habits can be helpful. There's no problem with me having a habit of shaving first on one side and then moving to the other. If I would start shaving on one side, on the other side, it would feel really weird. You can try that. I know in some uh, training places, they have you do your habits differently. Okay, you know, eat food using the fork in your opposite hand. What would that be like? Right? Okay. The second uh, aspect of the ordinary experience or the more awake is um, what we might call our ordinary experience of our body. And generally, again, uh, with a lot of exceptions, we're mostly not aware of our bodies. And this is, again, more cultural, related to Western culture. It's, It's obviously the other side of thinking all the time is that we're generally not aware of the body. Some cultures, they're very aware of their bodies, and maybe they don't think that much. Right? So it's different in different cultures. I'm not saying one's better than the other. Uh, but in our, in our culture, again, this is not universal, but for many of us, we're not very aware of our bodies. That was certainly my conditioning. You know, there's a famous line from uh, uh, a short story by James Joyce in the collection called Dubliners. Anyone read Dubliners? Yeah, I read it in college. A lot of great stories, and one of the stories is about uh, a man named Mr. Duffy. And I think near the beginning of the the story, it says, Mr. Duffy lived a short distance from his body. (laughs) 
right? And is that familiar? I, I've told sometimes a story of when I was in college, or no, I was, I was, it was uh, a year or two after that. This is when I was living in Germany. And I would go walk every day to my German class, like from, I was living on a farm, and I'd walk like two miles or something to go to my class. And one day I noticed that I wasn't aware of my body at all. I hadn't really thought about that. And I had been physically very active, you know, a hiker, and I, I mentioned it. I mentioned I was, a, I was a competitive swimmer, right? I mentioned that. And I was a very physically active, but not aware of my body. Yeah. And I, at that day, I said, I'm not aware of my body at all. I'm like consciousness on a pole. <laughs> and it was kind of a little bit shocking. And when I first started meditating, it was completely connected with becoming aware of my body. How many have had similar experience? Yeah, that it's, uh, and I got to see how much I wasn't aware, and I could see, okay, most of the people in the culture are not very aware of their bodies. And, you know, and they're more, again, more thinking, distracted, caught up by the default mode network. And, and so, very widespread, again, I think specific to our culture in many ways. Um, and, of course, that can have consequences. If you're, one's not aware of one's body, it's not just that one misses out on the experience of awareness of the body, but it also can be linked with not paying attention to how you're feeling. It can be linked to not taking care of oneself, not having, prop, you know, not eating good food, not getting enough sleep, which is very widespread in the culture, sleep deprivation. What's the percentage in the culture that's sleep deprived? high, isn't it? 50%? I don't know. But, you know, not, I, think, I would say not being aware of the body is linked with a lot of health issues. Not eating the right way, not sleeping, not exercising. I think that's, they're linked, you know, they're linked because we don't tune in in that way. So, where, where do we go with awareness of the body? What, uh, what's the Buddha mind or the Buddha awareness, what's that in relation to the body? It's, um, it's aware of the body. There's an awareness of the body. One develops what we might call an embodied awareness, where there's a full awareness of the body. And by the way, awareness of the body is one of the main ways to bring mindfulness into daily life. Because we can just bring it into walking. We can bring the mindfulness into walking, doing the dishes, you know. Uh, Doing, especially we start with a lot of activities where we don't have to do so much with our thinking. Yeah. And so we can do that. From the Buddha, he once said, in this fathom-long body with its perceptions in mind lies the world, the arising of the world, the cessation of the world, and the path leading to the cessation of the world. What he's meaning by that is when we look deeply at the body, the whole of development can, can occur. You know, concretely, he said that you can just do mindfulness of breath and stay with that, and all the learning that you need will occur. He said, within this fathom-long body is the complete spiritual path. Yeah, interesting, right? And, and some people especially focus on the body in that way. Uh, they might develop, you know, we develop mindfulness of the body. Again, something we, I found happened near the beginning. 
and was really like a revelation, you know. Gosh, I'm not really, like I said, consciousness on a pole, I'm not really aware. You know, gosh, look at that, and then I can be aware of that. Cool, I can just sit here and feel my hand. Never did that before. Right. And we can do walking meditation and be aware of the body in sitting meditation. We can do practices like yoga or tai chi or qigong, or there are a lot of practices which really cultivate awareness of the body and even develop the energy systems of the body, you know, which is a further development, a further kind of purification. We start to actually have a sense of the body not as this simply this solid thing, but actually more this living, this living, uh, this living energy, really, this living energy. The third area, I'm going through the main three areas of experience, thinking, the body, the cognitive, the body aspect, and then the emotions. Again, a lot of exceptions here, but the ordinary mind is often cut off from emotions. Again, if we're doing a lot of thinking, we may not be aware of the emotions very much. And so this third area, we might uh, really not know our emotions well. We may not have what's called these days emotional intelligence. We don't know so much. Some, a lot of this is somewhat linked to gender. Generally, men tend to be less developed in emotional intelligence than women for reasons of gender and conditioning. I always remember this you know, uh, uh, the second President Bush after 9-11, you know, it was a very difficult time and someone asked him, what have been your emotions in the last few weeks? What have some of your emotions been like? And he says, um, I don't really deal with that. That's Laura's business. <laughs> Pretty pretty intense statement, right? Yeah. right? And that's an extreme version. But there are, there are gender uh, aspects of it and other aspects as well. And so uh, we may not, you know, we may not have much uh, sense of kindness or warmth or empathy. <coughs> you know, I remember, I've, made, I've said this sometimes, there was a, a, a uh, writer in the local newspaper named Otis Taylor who said something in the uh, uh, election season of 2016 that has really stayed with me. You know, I think this was October, like one month before the election, he said, uh, I think what we most need in this country, as opposed to hearing about deleted emails and tax returns and so forth, what we most need is empathy. And you can certainly see in a lot of the, you know, what goes on, federal government, Congress, a lack of empathy, lack of really, it gets very oppositional, right? People aren't interested in hearing what other people's experiences are. That's a breakdown, right? You know, and so we can, uh, we can cultivate the heart. The, the Buddha heart is a heart of kindness. That's the Buddha for the Buddha is continually there. It's the default mode of approaching every being, is kindness and compassion. You have a line from one of the fa famous texts called the text on loving kindness. It has line in it, radiating kindness over the entire world. 
upwards to the skies and downwards to the depths, outward and unbounded. And that's the basic way of meeting the world. What would that be like? Right? That's again the direction. We have practices that can do that. So again, we move from what we might say uh, a relatively closed down heart. And again, we're all a mix of this. I would say we are all a mix of some degree of closed down, closed down, shut down, some or not awake, some degree of being not awake, and some degree of being awake, with the heart open at times, right? So we're a mix. And so we can do different practices that cultivate the heart. The fourth aspect, I don't know if I can get through these 10. <laughs> I don't know what to do. Because <laughs> I want to have some time for discussion. So I go through them. Should I go through them and name them all yeah. and go through a little quickly, or should I yeah. not name the last five? No. <laughs> name them all and come back later. Okay, got it. Thank you. This is called collaborative decision making. Okay. The fourth. Moving right along. <laughs> the fourth is the ordinary mind thinks that I am a separate, independent self as opposed to connected with others. This manifests in all sorts of ways. And we have some experiences where we feel more separate and isolated and different. It can come from when we judge ourselves harshly, you know, like. Uh, Gosh, sometimes I think I'm a little weird. <laughs> I'm tempted to ask for a show of hands on that one. <laughs> how many? How many at one thought of one moment have thought I'm a little weird? Okay, look around. It's really important to look around. Okay. Right, but at those at those moments, we feel we feel different, separate. And it's kind of like we're, 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 not, we're not so connected, right? And, and we all have versions of that. You know, it can come from all sorts of ways. Uh, so the sense of the self. I, you know, some of you have been coming on the Wednesdays. Now, I like to talk about this as the, ex the experience of the thick self. A thick sense of self or a kind of a strong or dense sense of self. And uh, this can manifest in ways, again, which are not particularly a problem. I notice that when I'm trying to get things done, I have a very, there's a strong sense of a self, which I call the doer. And this gets stuff done. You know, it's not a problem in itself, right? But there is a strong sense of I'm an independent doer. I'm doing, I'm me who's doing it, clearly. Right? And where we go with the, or maybe I'll say a few other ways that manifest when we, when you have self-consciousness or self-image or when I'm really reactive or, you know there's a strong sense of self and this is a this is a trickier thing to talk about because there I think the the um, I think the framework that I usually use is more developmental and that's actually important in development to have a sense of an independent self but if we end up there and that's all we, we develop we won't be able to love deeply we won't be able to connect deeply with nature. So we need to have a sense of self, but then at later places, times, we go beyond it. You know? 
and we don't lose the capacity to have a sense of me being relatively a separate self. The people who are on retreat now will meditate for one to two months. Their cars are in the parking lot down there. They will remember which car was theirs. You get my point. That's, that's not, you know, they will remember their zip code and their telephone number. Okay. So there are a lot of practices, and we focused on this at times, that really develop that sense of the more connected self or even going beyond a sense of self. Again, we've all had experiences of this. When we're very close to people, sometimes the sense of self goes away. Sometimes in music or art or dancing. And I think just uh, more than we actually realize in daily life. We may be doing things that we're really good at and love and there's no sense of self. Maybe art or dancing or music. You're just there. You're just fully, you know, this is, this is, um, what the psychologist, the Hungarian-born psychologist Csikszentmihalyi calls being in the flow. When we're in the flow, and again some examples would be music, art, dancing, but also doing everyday things that you do all the time. You may be fully immersed in them, not distracted, not thinking a lot, but fully in them. You know, when you're dancing, just feeling the body, right? And so forth. That's very close to what we develop in meditation. Pretty interesting, right? So they're very, and I think we don't appreciate those moments quite enough. Okay, moving right along, the fifth. The fifth uh, ordinary sense of self is that we all have what we might call unconscious material. A lot of it developed uh, in our early years through childhood. Some of us have wounds or even trauma that influences us. And part of the movement from the ordinary mind to the deeper mind of wisdom and love, the Buddha mind, is to work through that stuff. And again, we can do that in a variety of ways, sometimes psychological work, some of it we can do in meditation. I teach a lot, as many of you know, on one area of that work, which I call transforming the judgmental mind. Self-judgment, judgment of others in a harsh, reactive way. And there are ways to work through that. A lot of that's tied with old stuff from our childhood. You know, how we internalized stuff from family and culture. Could be even that sense of I'm a little weird. That could have come from an early age. And we work through that stuff. We work through that. Similarly, the sixth is that we have similarly material around social conditioning. We've all taken in a lot of social conditioning around race, gender, sexual orientation, age, uh, ability, religion, educational level. Probably could name 20 of those, right? And we've all internalized it. And they really, they're almost like uh, beneath the surface. That's why psychologists recently have been using the term implicit bias. Do you know that term? Right? You know, and I think it's very suggestive. It's suggested that a lot of what we internalize is implicit. It's not explicit. We don't even know we're doing it. When, they, when the psychologists have looked at implicit bias in people, you know, let's say around 
gender, her race, what they find is that people have the implicit biases and it goes against often their conscious thinking. I don't want to be biased, but when you look at their behavior and the way their mind works, they are. Even if they say, I'm not biased. So that's what the psychologists find. So that's a lot of work. We don't know fully how to do all of that, how to work all that stuff out. That's still, I think, in process. And for me, one of the exciting ways that meditation connects with other areas is to bring together the tools of meditation to help with the transformation of social conditioning. It's actually one of the exciting areas because mindfulness helps us to track what goes on in our mind, even kind of subtly. Okay? So the seventh, 10's a good number, but I'm only on number seven. I went, uh, the book that I have out, outside that I, uh, the last book that I did called The Engaged Spiritual Life, I originally wrote 11 chapters. And my, the editors at the publication place, they said, no. <laughs> ten. Okay, so ten's a good number. It has some, you know, the Buddha used ten at times. You know, Moses and God used ten. If <laughs> I wasn't sacrilegious, but okay. So number seven, this is getting sometimes a little more subtle. Number seven, the ordinary mind sees objects like a bell, a glass, a table, we see them as external and permanent. We tend to see them that way. Our way of understanding the external world is totally wrapped up with language and conceptualization. We live in a conceptual universe in which I look outside and I think tree. And uh, we don't see how things change. We tend not to see impermanence very well. We don't tend to see how we've, in a sense, constructed the world. I'm telescoping a lot here, but what we learn to do in meditation is we learn to see better how, in a sense, we've constructed the world in a certain way. It could be different, you know? Eskimos have, what, 40 words for snow? We don't have too many. Do they see the same world as us? I don't think so. So we live in a kind of constructed world part of that default uh, network, right? And we don't realize that. <coughs> and again, it's very much because we're so dominated by language. And so what we do again in meditation is we learn to see through that. And they're both more gross dimensions of doing that, and some of it's very, very subtle. And we do more in advanced stages of practice. And so, you know, in the early stages, it's more like, can I be with the sunset without thinking sunset? Can I just be with the forms and colors? And I think a lot of us do that at times, right? We can just be without having the concepts dominate everything. Right? The eighth is similar. We live within time. Time is a construct that we use. Typically, past present and future. And as we, the Buddha mind is said to not be limited to that way of doing things, but actually go into various times. The, the, the immense mind of the Buddha 
can actually be in the past and it's said in the future. Maybe more controversial, but certainly experiences a living present which opens up. And it's pretty interesting. It's again, this is maybe a more esoteric area. But I have people I know who are very deep meditators who actually have dialogues with people who are dead. And that time is not um, a limit in that way. And of course, this is very, this understanding is very widespread in other cultures. Most indigenous cultures, there's a sense of when people die, they go to the realm of the ancestors. And communication is possible. Right? So, probably most cultures that have existed, except for ours, believe that. It's interesting, isn't it? But we have this sense of being really caught up in, okay, past is past, can't go there. Present, future, and we largely live in the past and the future, don't we? Not so much in the present. So the Buddha mind's also very present-centered, and that expands outward. So there's a lot that could be said there, right, more. And maybe I'll come back to, to time. Would you like me to explore time sometime? <laughs> okay, another time. <laughs> we'll have a good time. Okay, sorry. Huh? Okay. Uh, the ninth, I'm going to do these last two really quick, quickly, not take much time with them. Some of you know, people who are here for the first time know I actually, as part of my training to be a teacher and go into this role, I went to a clown school for six months. I was enrolled in the clown school of San Francisco. Very important training. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. I, sometime I'll bring in, I have a videotape of some of my performances. Okay, bring it in sometime. And I've actually, I think I've done at Spirit Rock, I think we did uh, like a, a day-long non-residential event on, um, uh, on clown work in the context, clown work and humor in the context of the spiritual path. And I brought my clown teacher. We did it together. It was really cool. I should do that again, huh? Okay. And bring, bring her here. Okay, so the ninth is that ordinary mind is caught up with reactivity. We're grabbing after the pleasant, pushing away the unpleasant all the time. A lot of our mind is like that. The Buddha mind is not reactive, doesn't spend the large part of one's life grabbing after the pleasant, pushing away the unpleasant, learns, and yet learns to be skillful and deal with it all. That was brief. Number 10, last one is that we're not really in touch with the sacred, with a sense of interconnection, with the depths of our being, the depths of our love, the depth of our wisdom, the depths of our awareness. And the Buddha mind is. You know, and we can, again, we can touch that. And when we do that, things are different, but things are also the same. You know, as I mentioned last time, that the journey goes from being completely taken up by the ordinary to seeing things in an extraordinary way. Seeing things as, wow, I'm seeing in a different way, I'm awake. And then we come back to the ordinary world 
and the ordinary is still there, but we can call it the extraordinary ordinary. So we go from ordinary to extraordinary to <coughs> extraordinary ordinary. Okay, was, okay, and I'll close with maybe with that same quotation I gave last time, which showed this is from the Zen tradition, and this is an expression of what I just said. So listen for the three stages. Before I had studied Zen, I saw mountains as mountains and rivers as rivers. Ordinary mind, taken for granted. Okay. When I arrived at a more intimate knowledge, this is the depth of practice, I came to the point where I saw that mountains are not mountains and rivers are not rivers. Seeing things differently. Maybe that could be code for not seeing things always through the conceptual mind. But now that I have got its very substance, now with more maturity, I am at rest. For it's just that I see mountains are once again mountains and rivers are once again rivers. The end. <laughs> Thank you. So we have uh, about 10 minutes maybe if we want to talk together about anything I said, question, reflection, comment, story. And I'll, um, should I repeat the questions or if you can speak loudly, that would be good. Uh, you, you mentioned a Hungarian thinker who, and I did not get his name, who you said something about being in the flow. Correct. Who, what, what's that? Yeah, so who is the person, the Hungarian psychologist who coined the phrase, the flow? being in the flow. Um, Google flow <laughs> along with the first letters CZ. It's, it's pronounced Csikszentmihalyi. I cannot spell it. <laughs> Csikszentmihalyi, but, it, but the first letters are CZ. I don't know what the third letter is. <laughs> yeah. And, but he, yeah, he developed that sense of being in the flow. And he said the flow, and I, I have found this really, really useful for giving a very accessible, ordinary sense of what it is to be doing things without a strong sense of self. And like I say, when we've talked about that before, I asked, what are we experiencing like that? Okay, art, dancing, playing music, right? You're just fully with the experience. That's the idea. You're fully uh, sports, right? You have a lot of athletes talk about being in the flow. I've, I've given stories, you know, of uh, being in the flow. So it's I, I think it's a really important because it makes us realize that where this is going can sound a little bit out there, but it's actually very, very much something we know. We just don't realize that's what's happening. Yeah. Thanks. Yeah. Um. This might be too much, but <coughs> right now, but it just occurs to me, I don't really know what the idea about death is from this perspective. From, uh, is it that you become one with a flow? Or yeah. You, you go away from that individual awareness? Or yeah. Yeah, what is the view of death <coughs> in Buddhism? Is that what you want to ask? Or? From the, particularly from this from what, yeah, from this approach. Um, 
I think it's something that we're actually looking at a lot now. There are different traditional views in the Buddhist tradition. You know, and most of us know that in Buddhist tradition there's a sense of rebirth, right? There's a sense that awareness and consciousness does not end with death. That's the view. So it's something we sometimes call that reincarnation or rebirth. That is the view, that is the traditional view from 25, 2600 years ago. And there's a sense, there's a sense that people, it's almost like the idea that people are all, on, uh, beings are all on a journey and they go, uh, maybe they learn something in this lifetime, but that they keep on learning. Sometimes it's said that all of us are on the ways to being a Buddha, but it takes, you know, for, this is again traditional notion, it takes lifetime after lifetime to do that. Uh, the Tibetan tradition probably has looked into death and dying more than any tradition on earth, and they have a very highly developed, somewhat esoteric system of even what happens uh, at the moment of death, you know, and what happens after death. This is called the understanding of the bardos, which is the, the in-between time. And maybe I can talk about, I've, I've given a few talks on death and dying here. Uh, but, so that's, that's the short answer. And um, I think Westerners are um, not sure quite what to make of all this, generally. Western practitioners, including teachers, not sure. I remember there was one time we had a teacher's meeting, and we were doing an exercise where people would uh, be all gathered online. Maybe you've done this exercise, sometimes done in diversity training. And then you say something, and you say, like, everyone who's had some trauma walked to the other side of the room, right? Mm -hmm. Everyone who's had sexual abuse walked to the other side of the room. It's kind of, this is, you know, those of you who are this ethnicity walked to the other side of the room. So a lot of things, you know, just to understand what's there in the room, right? And one of the questions asked was, if you believe in rebirth, go to the other side of the room. It was really interesting what happened. One third of the group did not move. These are teachers who are teaching what we're exploring. One third of the group did not move. In other words, it wasn't meaningful to them. One third walked to the other side, meaning this is what we believe and work with. One third moved to the middle. <laughs> meaning, not sure, don't know, right? But I don't, I'm not, you know, fixed on the view that it's either true or false. So open to inquiry, right? Interesting, isn't it? Please. I spent the last 24 hours reading Michael Pollan's book, How to Change Your Mind. Oh, yeah. familiar with it. Yeah. He mentions the default mode and so on and so forth. But my, my comment is it's so interesting. Uh, his book is about using psychedelics as therapy hmm. and kind of the point or the hope of the therapy is that these people experience the oneness with the universe and with all beings which is amazing because if you follow the Buddhist path and get lucky you will experience that without drugs right so I just think that's interesting yeah, that's a very, how many of you know that book, Michael Pollan, uh, How to Change Your Mind, and 
you could also listen if you if you look online. I know that there are interviews with him, which are which I've heard. I think one is on, like, uh, Fresh Air. You know that yeah. NPR program. So he's worth listening to. The book's very interesting. I I've read a lot of it, and basically uh, they find that in certain optimal conditions, the use of some psychedelics actually uh, has people touch some of what we've been talking about. You know, it doesn't res result in um, permanent changes necessarily, but they, you know, they've done controlled experiments, and sometimes it's basically people can touch some more advanced places in terms of everything I've just been talking about, and go beyond being dominated by concepts. Right? They can uh, have some sense of the interconnection of things at least for a short time. And it, it sometimes changes their lives. They found the research shows that people who are uh, dying often totally change their view towards death after those experiences. It sort of upsets the habitual mind. Yeah, it, the habitual mind, they've gone beyond the habitual mind, maybe for the first time. Meditators would be more familiar with that territory. Uh, but yeah, they go, they go beyond the ordinary mind and it actually has been sometimes quite successful with depression as well. So it's a good book, yeah, please. Yeah, it's in special uh, guided practices. So there's a lot of controversy and uh, this is not an endorsement of go out and go do it. Okay. That's how Acid was introduced back in the 60s as well. You have to have a guide, yeah. it has to be good stuff. You can't just do it on your own. Yeah, but people that did. Fell away. <laughs> <laughs> right, so, so saying the guidance from the 1960s about this was do it with guides in supportive environments. And of course, many people did not. And a certain amount of casualties, sadly. Uh, maybe last one? Yeah. So, my question is um, sort of connected to that this idea. I was in when number four, when yeah. I was in number four, this idea of being interconnected with all beings. Yeah. I, my own experience, and now I see it reflected in others, was this attempt to get there fast. Yeah. So they, this spiritual bypassing, would you say? Yeah. No, it's a great question. Very related to what we just talked about. That uh, um, the, the path that we're talking about here, that I outlined, is done with experienced teachers, with community, with friends, and especially, not all teachers bring in the dealing with psychological and social conditioning, you know, which has been important for me. Uh, but um, there's there's a there's a there's a very there's there's 2,600 years of accumulated wisdom and guidance on how to do this, right? And then you know you can also get from other traditions as well. I mean, I I draw you know I read and draw from Christian, Jewish you know, Islamic, indigenous traditions that, you know, get certain pieces there that are important. And so there, there's a way in which we, we don't really rush things or try to get too quickly to where we think is good. And, and inevitably people do that, right? People even come to a meditation retreat and they have some experience and they want to get there. So they do a lot of retreats, but they don't ground it necessarily in their daily lives. That's sometimes what we call spiritual bypassing, where there's some psychological issue or developmental issue that people don't deal with because they think they want to be spiritual. 
and get to these states, right? And a good teacher would notice that and point it out, right? And people can do that with the psychedelics, right? And in fact, it's to be expected that some of that would happen, right? And so the aim here is really to, um, what, to um, be comprehensive in working through one's own conditioning. So it's, um, you need patience, but I think the map, uh, having a map is really helpful, and I, I enjoyed uh, developing that. I just did it yesterday and today, and just to, uh, I hope it's helpful, and obviously what we might do is go through all 10 in more detail. <laughs> so how many would like that? That would, yeah, and you could, you could hear them even though you're not here pres present physically, because they'll be available, no cost, uh, later. But it also saves me from having to think about new topics to talk about. <laughs> <laughs> not bad. <laughs> okay. Uh, thank you. So, um, so thank you to uh, everyone. Thanks to the visitors for your openness and for your explorations. They May it be the um, insights and discoveries continue and great to meet everyone and who's here for the first time and um, we'll continue. So thank you. Let me do the, the traditional way that we often end on Wednesdays. As it's, it's a tradition that goes back uh, thousands of years. Is we remember that we do this for ourselves but we also do it for others. And may the benefits of the morning, we sometimes put our hands like this, I uh, don't have to, but uh, may the benefits of our time together be useful for ourselves, be useful for those who are important in our lives, and may it be useful for all other beings, so that we offer the benefits ultimately for all beings of which we are a part. and to be continued. <laughs>